If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 19. It's going to be our scripture text today. And it's actually just beautifully sung by the team. Can we give these guys a hand as they just lead us just so faithfully? These guys do such a great job. The setup teardown team does a straight, such a great job to, to get us in a place where we can, we can uh, celebrate in such a, and worship in such a uh, mobile place, a portable place. And we will shamelessly bribe you with a trip to the beach to see if you'll join us. We're getting a, boot, a Google bus, double-decker, I heard one of, the t- one of the teammates are getting there. I asked if it was the London, like, red ones. No, it's the, the white Google ones. Um, we could get two buses if enough folks uh, that were expecting. If you sign up early, okay, we, need to, we really do need to plan and, and spaces. Uh, we need to be planning for that. We're going to do a pizza party and all that. Uh, so hopefully now you have your Bibles open to Psalm 19 either uh, physically or digitally. It'll be also be on the, the screen there for you. Psalm 19, written by the, the ancient King David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They have no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warmed. In, key, in keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant all also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We can go home after that. That's a beautiful beautiful text. Have you ever said or felt, if God would just reveal himself to me, then I'd believe? Have you ever said or felt that way? I actually know there's a number of you in this room who have said and felt that way, Uh, a few of you even who have said that, and it's precisely because you've asked that that you you are now followers of Jesus. You, You follow God. There's one point in your life, or maybe several points, usually several points, that you're just like, you know what, this makes sense. This God, yes, I believe. And then for some of you, maybe you've asked this question, you're still waiting, you're still searching, seeking it out. Uh, We look this morning at this beautiful psalm and see how God has revealed himself to us. And the the force of which the, the psalmist is saying, and this is the God of heavens and earth, that he's made himself known to us, that he reveals himself to us. It's amazing. And so we're going to look at how he's revealed himself to us and why that matters. More specifically, in terms of the series that we're in, uh, how him having re- revealed himself matters to our soul, how it's good for our soul. Our series, Seasons of the Soul, we're looking at the Psalms as we go through the, the summer months here. Um, and and the, the basic idea is this. Just as there are different seasons of the year, there seem to be different seasons of the soul, seasons of newness, life, laughter, joy, as well as seasons that feel a little bit more dark, more dreary. Uh, or a little bit more cold. Well, in this beautiful psalm, God shows us not only how he's revealed himself to us, how he continues to reveal 
uh, himself to us, but how that's helpful to our souls. So we're going to unpack that. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Father, our prayer today is what we just read, what we just sang, from this, taken directly from this psalm. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first thought, and these are just kind of high-level thoughts to kind of hang, hang our, our, our message here, is in the first six verses we see God reveals himself through creation. Now, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here when we looked at the Psalm, uh, psalm 8. In Psalm 8, the point there was more uh, the creations, the heavens, the earth, the moon, the sun, the stars, all that sort of thing, uh, show us how great, how big, how vast beyond measure God is. Uh, today's uh, thought, same writer, King David, is, is more saying it's, cre- it's in creation that we see God revealing himself to us. He makes himself known. Verses 1 and 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Uh, that phrase there, pours forth speech, is actually a lot stronger in the Hebrew than it is in our translated English. Uh, it has the idea, it's more literally meaning a gushing spring of, of constant outpouring of sweet, refreshing waters of revelation. Uh, and then that phrase reveals knowledge, that the, the skies reveal knowledge, is interesting to ponder because knowledge is well-matched with the night. Uh, if, you th- if you think about it this way, since without the night skies, we would not have known, at least until recently, uh, nothing but an empty universe. Um, if God had not placed the stars in the sky, or at least for us to see, the blackness of light would have communicated powerfully to all humanity, ancient and modern, that there is nothing or no one out there. Um, all of God's creation reveal God and His glory to us. One ancient theologian put it this way, Though all preachers on earth should grow silent and every human mouth cease from publishing the, the glory of God, the heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim His majesty and glory. They are forever preaching. For like an unbroken chain, their message is delivered from day to day and from night to night. I've mentioned before that um, this is one of the key reasons why I'm a Christian today, why I believe in Jesus, why I'm a follower of His. When I was in college, an undergraduate at Cal, I had a number of my friends there, as they want to do at Cal, say things to me like, hey, you're only a Christian because you were raised that way. And after hearing that a few times, I was like, you know what, that could very, much well, that could very well be valid. So I went on a spiritual journey of sorts, just kind of trying to understand what it is I I believe and why is it I believe it. And one of the key convictions I came to was there must be a God. Life is too beautiful and seemingly not random that there has to be a God. Intellectually speaking, it is easier for me to believe than than not to believe that. Uh, Philosopher analogies have resonated with me. For instance, I talked about a couple weeks ago about the one where you know, because life is so intricate and so uh, seemingly not random, it's like a, a person walking through a forest to see coming across a watch. That person doesn't ask, "Well, how does this, you know, watch come into be?" It's like, "Who made this watch?" Or the or the analogy that philosophers would give of of like a tornado blowing through a warehouse of junk only to produce a fully functioning 747. All that really resonated with me. And for instance, too, it, it's, it, it, the idea of coming from nothing into something is something I haven't been able to get my head around. It seems to me like there's something, someone that caused all of this. And so that's, that's been my driving conviction. It's like Romans 1.20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible, invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That resonates. That's what the psalm is saying here. 
verse 3 and 4, talking about the, the skies. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. That's an amazing thought. What he's saying here is not just that God reveals himself in creation, but that he re- reveals in his, in himself through creation to everyone. To the ends of the earth, everybody can accept Think of it this way. Rich, poor, young, old, far and wide, all have the ability to see God and His, and his beauty and love uh, through creation. We talk a lot about growing inequality, the different gaps of wealth or whatever it might be in our society, and rightly so. These are matters that, we, that need to concern us, we need to be thinking about. But here's one of the best things in life, and that is it's all freely available to creation and just what we can see. It's available to everyone and anyone. Not only is God's glory amazing and beautiful, it's amazingly and beautifully accessible to everyone. Uh, Aristotle says this way, Should a man live underground and these converse with the works of art and mechanism and should afterwards be brought up into the open day and see the several glories of the heavens and earth, he would immediately pronounce them the way of such a being as we define God to be. The heavens declare the glory of God. They reveal knowledge. What do they reveal about God? What is His glory? Uh, What do we understand from Him and His glory? Well, just a couple of thoughts. His glory, we see in in His, uh, His glory is in His immensity, having created something so big. His glory is in His engineering, having created something that works so well together. His glory is in his artistry, having created something so beautiful. And his glory is in his goodness and kindness, having created something for all humanity to see and to enjoy. It's that thought I want to consider a little bit further because that's what David presses home in these next few verses. He talks about this illustration of the sun. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course It rises at one end of the heavens, and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. That's an amazing thought there. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. God provides the sun, indeed all of creation, for our well-being and our enjoyment. Um, There's this old uh, catechism question and answer to kind of Catechisms were kind of the, the, the church's ancient way of kind of condensing theology into a brief, like, concise thought for people to kind of memorize and take with them. The Bible says a lot about who God is and what He calls us to. And so the, the catechisms, a lot of these churches and, and church groups and networks would, would come together and, like, let's put together catechisms to help us capture these thoughts. The, probably the most famous of all catechism thoughts is taken from the shorter Westminster Catechism, whatever, is it's number one, it, number one uh, question and answer from that little catechism, and it's this. What is the, the, the chief end of man? Maybe you've heard this if you've grown up in the church, maybe not. What is man's chief end? What is the main purpose of, of, of mankind? Man's chief end, the answer goes on to say, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever which is interesting to think about. It, man's chief end is not just to do what God says, and, and, and you know, if God is there, then well, we should probably do what he says. And, and it, he, it, They really capture it, what the Bible is ultimately about, and saying it's our main purpose to glorify and to enjoy him. Genesis 1 and 2 is about God creating things and declaring each of them good. He creates the heavens, they're good. He creates the, the, the animals, 
They're good. And at the end of it, he creates mankind. He places them in the midst of all that, in the midst of all creation, and calls it very good. What's he doing to mankind? Putting mankind to steward and to enjoy it all. Nothing is deprived of the sun's warmth. It's given for our creation is given for our good and our enjoyment. Now, what does this have to do with our with our question that we're asking today? What does it have to do with our series, Seasons of the Soul? How, how is this helpful for us, whatever we're facing in life, whether we're going through good times or whether we're going through hard times? Creation is there to give us perspective to help us wherever we're at. Let's say you're going through, for instance, something that's a little bit harder in life, a season that's that's pretty hard. I, I had a a buddy on uh, social media recently post a video of, of another person uh, who he doesn't know, it was just a video that's put together, of this individual who was battling severe depression. Okay, this guy was just, this was kind of a video montage and this guy telling his story about how he's battling severe depression. And at one point, he was, it was so bad that he was, he was walking out on the Golden Gate Bridge to, lit, to end it all, okay? So he's out there and he's walking over to, to find a ledge or whatever it might be. And a gal comes up to him at some point and asks him to take a photo of her. Right? And she's on the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, take a picture of me, that sort of thing. And he's recounting the story, obviously in hindsight, he's like, that was a real low for me. Like, I'm sitting there, and like, this woman, nobody knows what I'm going through. Like, there's so much isolation, so much pain, there's just no one there. And, it, and, and his conclusion, obviously, again, he's telling this in hindsight, he said, but that, I, just, I finally came to realize that just wasn't true. If you're going through a really hard season, a season that feels dark to your soul, dreary and cold, you may feel isolated. You may feel alone. You may be even surrounded by a lot of people physically, but still all, nonetheless feel alone. We want you to hear this, this morning is you are not alone. As a side note, as a church, we are here for you. We want to be available to you. Come see one of us. Come see me. We want, we want, to, we want to walk that with you. But the point of this psalm, which is infinitely greater, infinitely greater than even having a church available to you, is that God sees you, knows you, and wants to be there for you. How do you know that? How can you see that? Lift up your eyes. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars. Look at the trees. Look at the rolling hills. They are all ways God is saying, subtly and not so much, that he cares for you and wants your best for you. He placed you here. He wants you. Creation sings of his glory, and his glory is for your enjoyment, your well-being, each and every one of us. Um, and if you're going through good times, this is also helpful. It gives great perspective. Uh, even if you're experiencing a season of life uh, joys and, and ups and all that, uh, one biblical scholar said it this way, this psalm helps us to see God in everything around us, and thus leads us into proper appreciation of the world. I used to have a, a, a professor in seminary who taught us preaching, this old African-American gospel preacher, amazing preacher. Actually, as a quick side note, because I'm going to tell him the story, is he'd preach so hard that he'd literally have guys come behind him because he'd like run out of breath and faint. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, he was an amazing guy. Um, he, I learned a lot of stuff about preaching in that class, but what really sticks with me, actually, from that class was how he would pray before the class began, which is kind of fun, coming out of Cal and then going into an environment where they pray before class was kind of fun. But anyways, he prayed before class, and it was never a prayer like, and God, help this class go really well and let the students learn. He'd get up there, this old, wise, gifted dude, and he would just start the thing by saying, okay, everybody close your eyes, bow your heads, and he'd take a big breath in. He'd say, Father, thank you for the air in our lungs. And then he'd stand there for 30 seconds, sometimes 60 seconds, which is an eternity. Okay, when you're sitting there, I would even cheat. Be like, what's going on? That kind of deal. 
And he let his, he just, and he'd say, amen. And at first I thought that was really awkward, and then I thought about it a little bit more. I was like, that's an amazing thought. Like, I, and I think that's kind of what God is saying through creation. We can just, st- especially in the frenetic pace of the Silicon Valley, we just need to stop and pause, take it in, not take it for granted, and just appreciate what it is and let that refresh our soul, or at least begin to refresh our soul. Because moving into the next point, it actually ultimately cannot refresh our soul. If there's anything in the first six verses are telling us, they're telling us about God, the created order, His nature that we can see in it. Romans 1 elaborates to say that it's even evidence of a designer and a creator behind it all, that this evidence is something our minds and hearts can intuit or infer from. But what's important to see here as the psalm, psalmist continues is that while we can see God revealed in creation, it's not enough. Uh, we need real, literal words. The message of Psalm 19 as a whole is as great as nature is, it cannot revive the soul. Um, it can leave an impression, but it can't restore. It can give perspective, but it can't, as, in, as we'll see in verse 7 here, refresh the soul. We need God's word. Second high-level thought, God reveals himself through the word, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. There are countless people, many of whom are, are no doubt sitting here in this room today, uh, who can say, it wasn't until I believed God's design and said no to the things that God's law says no to. It wasn't until I came under his commandments that I finally began to uh, uh, see my marriage revived, my work life revived, my self-esteem revived, my psyche revived. The law of the Lord is perfect, he says. Uh, here's the point. Uh, when we follow God's word, it is not destructive, but liberating. It's not destructive, it's liberating. Now, as soon as I say that, immediately when I say that, no doubt, uh, some of us will say, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Laws are, not, uh, are liberating. Uh, if anything, God, uh, laws, statutes, precepts, all these words here are restricting, not liberating. Um, but there is a transcendence to his law. There's an understanding of how we're made. Just as the U.S. Constitution, for instance, has laws not with the goal to restrict but to grant liberties, God's word brings life wholeness, and freedom even. I was reading a devotional to my, my six-year-old uh, uh, a little back, a little while back, and it was kind of talking about this thought, and I love it when children's, you know, authors or whatever kind of break things down, because it breaks down for me. I'm like, oh, I understand. that's helpful. Um, and he was talking about how, uh, like, you know, they use the, the analogy of a fish. Like, it's like as if a fish one day decided, I've had enough of being told what I can and can't do and only being allowed in water. I want to be free. I'm going to find my fortune on land. And then this fish jumps out of the water onto the riverbank, and what happens? The fish uh, wouldn't get too, doesn't get too far. It wriggles its, and flaps its fins around, but those fins don't really work on land. Um, in the end, the fish isn't really all that free on land because the fish isn't built for land. And what God's Word shows us is that we are not built to be away from our Heavenly Father. It shows us who we are meant to be, how we are designed to be. And when we come into agreement with that, it is refreshing to the soul. Um, I came across an article, I want to say last week, and actually from time to time I see articles like this every once in a while that, that kind of uh, pop into my newsfeed. But the article is basically something to, uh, to this effect. It said, experts say that helping others help you live longer. Okay, so like studies have found that helping others helps you live others. Do good to others and it'll help you live others. And it was talking about how, boy, you're not even only going to be feeling good if you help others, but physiologically it'll help you live longer. And I was kind of chuckling at the 
conclusion that wasn't really stated in that article. Okay, therefore then, be selfish in being selfless? Is that, gonna, is that the conclusion? Okay. Um, which, you know, it's a helpful thought. Uh, interesting finding. If you know anything about Jesus' teachings, if you know anything about the Bible, Jesus taught that we should put others before ourselves, that we should love our enemies even, that we should care, we should live selflessly, we should live sacrificially. But it's never with the force of so that you can then live longer or so that it'll go better for you. I mean, that's sometimes definitely the case, but it's always the force because this is who you are, Jesus tells us. This is who you're designed to be. Um, It will give you joy of the heart. Uh, verse 8, because this is who you're meant to be. Have you ever talked to someone and asked them just kind of like philosophically, somebody who really loves to help others, like what, what makes you, what motivates you? Like why, should you, why do you help others? Like, I, I love asking that question because I love learning from folks and just kind of entering into conversation like that. Um, it's uh, oftentimes the answer, if, if, if there is an answer, by the way, often we don't really think about it. We're just like, oh, I guess I just do it or I feel like I should do it. Um, sometimes the answer is uh, from a sociological perspective. Well, I help others for the good of society, because if there's a society that's based on people helping others, then in helping others, we all do better. I'll do better, they do better, and all that sort of thing. The problem with that reasoning, at least it seems to me, is it's a little bit leaky, leaky. because the moment that an individual says in, in that society, well, you know what, in this situation, it'll actually go better for me, and nobody will really mind over there or even know or that sort of thing, which, by the way, is going to happen more often than not, because so many things that we do for ourselves is going to be better for us, and but when we do that, then we say, well, I'm just going to go here. And another person over here says, and we start, you can see how it starts to break down. But Jesus, God's word tells us the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In other words, this is what you are created to do. This is who you are created to be, to love others, to put others first. And when we do that, it will refresh our soul because we come into agreement with what, who God has made us to be. Verse 11 is, is a helpful verse because it just states outright the value of God's word. By them, that is the law, that is God's word, uh, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Real quickly, warned of what? Well, just some ideas. Sins we're susceptible to, areas of fault that we might run into, dangers we cannot see, dangers we cannot appreciate, dangers far off that might not materialize materialize right away, but it will come down the road. Okay, that's the warns part, but here's the fascinating thought to me. In keeping God's word, there is great reward. In keeping God's word, for it's true that there's great reward for keeping the word of God. That's not what David is saying here. He's saying the reward is in keeping God's word. You tracking that? It's not for keeping God's word. It's in keeping God's word. There's a sense in which following God's word becomes its own reward um, because we live the way that God wants us to, lives us, uh, made us, and designed us for. Uh, let me give you an example. And, you know, uh, if you've ever read the book of uh, Good to Great, have you read that by Jim Collins? I love that book. It's a real, real helpful book. I encourage you to read it. Highly recommend. Jim Collins wrote this groundbreaking book, book that is all empirically based, showing what makes companies great versus good. Now, I don't have the time to unpack this, but there's certain measures that, you know, this is a great company versus a good company. But he's like, when you look at the, all the empirical data, when you look at all the surveys we've completed, when you look at all the, like, numbers, and you, you have all the conversations, you compile it all together, what you'll find is that more often than not, in the great companies versus the good companies, you'll have a leader at the helm who is incredibly humble. If you've read this, you know this. 
most of the great companies are led by humble leaders. Humility is one of the key things. And Jim Collins, you know, leaders, for instance, who will say things like, you know, they'll push credit. They'll say, you know what, it's not about me, it's about the team. The team's the one who really got us here. Or, hey, we were just, I was just in the right place at the right time. Or any number of things, like I, I, I got lucky, or actually a lot of them even in the book say, I was, I, I'm blessed. Um, or, or, this is the kind, and Jim Collins is writing this by saying, can you believe this? It's about humility, guys. Obviously, there's exceptions over here in this company or that company, but the vast majority are, of great companies are led by humble leaders. Can you believe that? Because here's our culture puffing out our chest. You've got to be alpha. You've got to go name it and claim it, and then people will follow you. Then you'll have a great company. He's like, Jim Collins, no. These great companies are led by people who are humble. Can you believe it? If you've read the Bible and you believe it, you can believe that it's about humility. I mean, the, the God's word, his precepts, his, his law has so many things like, you know, pride goeth before the fall. God raises up, lifts up the humble. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. All these sorts of things that in our society we, we wouldn't necessarily think, but Jesus is saying, no, that's who you are designed to be. Now here, I just said all of that. Here's what we do with that from a worldly conclusion basis. Oh, David, you just taught me. Jim Collins shows empirically that if I'm humble, it'll help with leadership. Okay, so therefore, if I be a humble leader, then I could maybe give myself a better chance to be successful. And that's how we'd see it, right? We're thinking about the ends. But again, that's trying to go for the reward as the ends. God is saying, uh, David is saying the reward is in keeping God's word. There's some truth there. If you're a humble leader, empirically, it's shown, it's proven. You'll have a good, better chance, I guess, of having, leading a great company, but that's not the point. You will find blessing in just being humble, regardless of the worldly success, however we define that. Well, how does that work? Well, just think about it for a moment. People who are proud or have to like really puff up their chest, there's a lot of pressure there. There's a lot of weight there that the humble leader just doesn't have to live with. There's blessing there that there's a weight lifted off the shoulder of being the person you actually are, Recognize that we could all claim stuff that's just, we can't claim. I mean, it, not only is it absolutely true that that kind of success only comes through, like, teams and no, like, one individual, no matter how amazing that individual is. I mean, you start to think about, like, just, we have, to, we have to even be born into the right family to achieve that kind of success. Families with the right privilege, families with the right network, you, you name all that sort of, take a step back. We have to be born at all. And the God's Word is saying uh, that should make in us a spirit of humility. That's who He's made us to be. That's, that, that's who He is when He could boast till heaven comes home. Um, we, are, we are called to be humble because that's who we are, and there's, there's, there's reward, there's blessing, even in the midst of keeping that. God reveals Himself through creation. It's no accident you are here. That's an amazing thought. He knows you, loves you, wants his best for you, wants you to enjoy him. So he's also revealed his word to help us more fully understand who he is, who he's called you into. But the best part of the psalm is where it concludes. For the last few verses, really get to the heart of the matter, really get to the soul of the matter. God reveals himself as redeemer. Verses 12 through 14. David, in writing this beautiful psalm, is, is, is making the thought of, wow, I can see, God, you revealed in creation. God, I can see you and who you've made to be revealed in our word. And then he shifts gears and says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. 
Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. David knows the law. He knows the precepts. He knows the commands. He finds them beautiful. But what he also, and, he, and, he, and he knows and understands God's radiant glory around him, but he's struck with the thought because of those things that if that's all true, then how can he stand before this God? Uh, his soul knows and feels, I can't, I cannot. Verse 2, who can discern their own errors? His answer, of course, is no one. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. It's worth noting that this is a prayer of a saint, of a real holy man. I took Hebrew, actually, not in seminary or, or at Cal. I took it at a Hallel house uh, near the UC Berkeley campus because I just wanted to immerse myself in a Jewish community and just kind of learn that way. And one of the things that really stuck out to me in that, in that process was how much that community reveres David, King David. There's a lot of amazing figures in their history, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, that they all could, and they, and they respect and love all those figures. But David, is he's like unto his own category in terms of how much they revere him. And yet here's this David needing to cry out, keep your servant from willful sins. From willful sins, which really gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? It gets to the heart of the matter of, of the Bible. God has revealed himself to us in more ways than we deserve, frankly, and from what very little we might be able to perceive of him, his glory, so holy, how can we stand before him? And the answer to that, of course, is we can't. We are unworthy. Even King David, if there was anybody who could probably claim I could stand, fell face down, I can't stand before you. And yet of all the things God reveals, the greatest revelation by far is that he's made a way back to him despite ourselves, despite our unworthiness. Verse 13, keep your servant from willful sins that I might be blameless, innocent, in transgression. God, you have to keep me. You have to make a way. And then verse 14, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Real quickly, these words, Lord. If you look at the first few verses, if you have your Bible out, you'll notice that God is referenced in the first, when he's talking about revealing himself through creation. It's saying, it declares the glories of God. That's the Hebrew word El, which is just to say the most generic word in Hebrew for God. Uh, it's, a, it's a word of awe and, 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 and reverence, but it's a generic word for God. But then as you move through, down through the psalm, starting at verse 7 or so, you start to see him say, the law of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, he says a number of times. That's the word Yahweh. That's the word for the great I am. That's the personal, intimate name of God. That's what he's saying here. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, you are a personal, intimate God that I can call by name, even as you know me by name. Rock, he connotes strength, of course, the firm standing place, one that is immovable, indestructible. And then the word redeemer which is the Hebrew word for goel, which I don't have time to go through all of this, but it means the kinsman redeemer from their history. We know it was a person who brought his relative out of slavery, who rescued him in bankruptcy and total loss. King David looked at God as his kinsman redeemer, who purchased him out of slavery, is what he's saying. What kind of slavery? Slavery of sin and ultimately of death. Forgive me my hidden faults, the things that I do, and I'm not even aware that I do them, that wrong others, hurt others, hurt my relationship with you. And forgive me and help me in, with the willful sins, the sins that I do and I'm enslaved to, even King David. 
Here's the message. Sin keeps us from being all that we could be in every area of our lives. It robs us of our freedom, and our hearts are in chains. How do slaves get free? Someone redeems them, pays the price to buy them back out of slavery, and sets them free. And the Bible says Jesus redeemed us out of slavery to sin. How? He paid the price. What was that price? His life. Mark 10 Verse 45 says, the Son of Man came to give his life as ransom for many. He is therefore then our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. He has made a way back into a personal relationship with God. But he won't force this relationship upon us. What he'll do is sing to you in creation, beckon you home, beckon you look further, and then through his word, shows you how Jesus has made a way. Uh, but you have to receive that. I remember my father-in-law, he got to the place. Before he died, he put his faith in Jesus. For a long time there, though, there was, there was a while where he's just like, it, I don't know, I think he probably phrased it this way looking back. He's basically like, yeah, I believe, but I'm not ready to make that step. Or I'm, this is kind of an interesting thing. We just talked about how there's like a line you, you just got to kind of step over. And for the longest time, he's just there. He's like, God's revealed himself to me, but I just don't, I don't know. And one day he stepped over that line, so to speak, and he's just like, why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't I do this earlier? Maybe that's you today. Maybe God has revealed himself to you in ways that you would never have articulated or thought he would actually do it, but he's made himself available to you. He's made him, he revealed himself to you, and he's asking you just to come over that line. Put your faith in him. Today's the day. Today's the day of salvation, Jesus says. And you can act that out in taking communion today. I'll give you an opportunity uh, to join us in communion, to, to, to join be a part of um, celebrating God and what he's done for us on the cross by, by taking communion. And then if you have received him, do you see the multifaceted love he's made available to you? He says, look outside. Look at creation. Know that I am for you. I love you. I care for you. Whatever you're going through, that is a rock for you to look at. Look at the rocks. Though they can't speak, they cry out. Um, he's revealed himself through his word uh, for the purpose of showing that he has, his, he has our best in our mind. Are you reading his word? Um, we've been talking a lot about that in the Psalms. The first few Psalms of, of, of the book of Psalms really kind of hits that home, doesn't it? We've been talking a lot about this. Maybe you need to pull the trigger on that. Maybe you can read the word. Don't feel like you have to like read an hour or two hours of a day. Find 15 minutes. Read it. Take it in. Meditate on it. Let it speak into you. And then he, of course, reveals himself as our Redeemer, our Lord and our Rock and our Redeemer so that you can know at the end of the day that you're going to be going through hard times. It's not going to be easy. And even when you struggle and you don't do your part to, like, keep things right, and even when you do willful sins, he's got you. He loves you. He will continue to be your Lord, your rock, and your redeemer. Let's pray. Father, what beautiful, beautiful poetry. What beautiful song. Uh, that we celebrate today, uh, this psalm, Psalm 19, that we've sung, that we've now kind of, we've prayed, and now we've considered uh, in, in, in teaching. Um, Lord, would, would these words, would these meditations really sink into our soul? Thank you for the beauty that's here, but more than the words that are on a page, thank you for the spirit and, and, and life that come through them, that in Jesus we have life in his name, that you've made this all for us to enjoy and steward, that you've given us a word, your word to point us towards you, and ultimately you gave us your life, that we might have life in you. It's that what, it's that what we celebrate today and every day. That, that's what we sing about, and that's what we come now to communion to remember. 
We love you, Father, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.